Hello and welcome back to another edition of Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. I hope you're enjoying listening to these podcasts as much as I'm enjoying making them. I'm either doing this right or perhaps wrong because my guest this morning is the first person on the show who's called me to come on the show rather than the other way around. Sean Tennyson has just been elected president of the JCCI, the Johannesburg Chambers of Commerce and Industry. And you have to feel for him, not just because of Joburg is in the trouble that it is in the middle of a COVID-19 firestorm, but because by so many accounts, the city is falling apart. I know Johannesburg is a resilient place and um, I lived there for 20 years. And the city I left two years ago was in a sorry enough state. What you hear and read about it now seems to have sunk even lower. So, Sean, thank you for joining me. Joburg streets are riddled with potholes, the pavement's overgrown with shrubs and grass, electricity is intermittent. The gift of the Givers Charity has had to drill boreholes in some hospital grounds in the last two weeks, so they have water to continue helping COVID victims. Crime is rife. What hope is there for the city, do you think? Do you, re- you represent business in your job? Would you put your money into Joburg right now if there were alternatives? Peter, good afternoon and to all the listeners out there as well. Thanks for joining us for the conversation. I think that what we need to reflect on is not necessarily always the state of what Joburg is in, which, as you mentioned, is in a horrific state at the moment, but also on the fact that it can continue to be a world-class city. I think that we definitely have some structural challenges uh, in place, both from a political perspective, a social perspective, um, and as well as a business perspective. But I think kind of the silver lining is still that Johannesburg is still the, the entry and pathway to economic growth, uh, not just for South Africa, but for the continent. So I, I guess it's, it's part of how do we work collectively in order to sort and solve some of these challenges. I think, as you mentioned, I, I've just recently been appointed as the president of the Johannesburg Chamber of Commerce and Industry. And, and part of the role there is really much how, how, does, how does one draw in on, on business uh, to, to also uh, play a more effective role and, and almost be uh, an intermediary between business and government in order to, to channel some of these challenges um, and, and see how are we able to collectively work on it. That's definitely the challenges that's there, and we can never ignore them. The difficulty, of course, with Johannesburg is who to talk to, because your constituency obviously is business, and at business in Joburg, from right at the bottom, right at the top, it's a resilient city, and there's no question about it, and it's tough, and it's, I think, you know, people who live and work in Johannesburg also love Johannesburg. It has many fantastic qualities that are hidden from first view when you land there, but trying to manage your way through the political sludge, and it doesn't matter what party you're talking about, that constitutes the management or the political control of Joburg, must be enormously important. This is something you're used to doing. I know that you work for the Growth Point Group, and so you're a big property developer in Joburg. Whether Joburg works matters to you directly. But how how do you manage the politics of it? It has an appallingly weak uh, local government. I think that when we start looking at um, the politics, it's, it's, it's something that one needs to engage. Luckily, from a chamber perspective, we, we do have good relations both with the province um, and with the city. And, and, and I think sometimes the challenges that come at play is being able to really engage with the operators on the ground. So 
yes, there is the political arena. Uh, one of the biggest challenges you're referring to the, uh, the the property industry, for instance, is just the level of engagement that the industry has with the city of Joburg in terms of, for instance, approval of development plans, the, the challenges it, it takes uh, in terms of getting those approvals from the city. That's something that we're actively engaging with in order to, to sort out. And I think that the biggest uh, element is, can, can we continuously um, focus on, uh, on highlighting these challenges, but also put plans in place in order to, to try and sort it out? I hosted the, the MEC for Economic Development um, at the Chamber uh, Box Tau um, about a month ago. The former mayor of Joburg, yeah? The former mayor of Joburg as well. So, you know, the, 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 the attitude, even at a province level, was really the fact that um, in order for us to, to, to focus on building uh, these economic corridors within the province, we need to be able to work well together. The province has been highly engaged with business in terms of the broader scale uh, developments, for instance, in the Lanseria area, which the president also had mentioned in his economic recovery plan uh, as, as a focus area. So I, I think that there are those pockets of, of engagement that is taking place, but it's also that the operational challenges on the ground are real. And I, I do believe that what we recommend also with the city and with the province is to allow business to come along and partner up more effectively. Uh, unfortunately, it's, it's, it's something that becomes a bit of a challenge, I guess, when, when one continuously says business does have some of the solutions that, that, that government is looking for. Uh, and I think government needs to be able to um, partner effectively and allow business to also be part of the problem solvers on the ground. Whereabouts do you begin with business? I mean, I understand the big companies, listed companies, you know, medium-sized family businesses. How far down the ladder do you go? I mean, are you interested in this in informal street traders in their good fortune or not their good fortune, their, their fortunes or their futures, or can you help them in any way? It really disturbed me to see under the DA mayoralty of Herman Mashaba, how street vendors were sort of kind of moved along and taken off and they're constantly harassed, you know. And, and I, I couldn't help thinking, whenever I traveled abroad in very dynamic countries like Thailand or in the Far East, street traders are part of the, part of the scene. They, they make up the, the city. Um, they give it life, you know. And, and, and we seem in South Africa to want everything to be much more clinical. Yeah, I think that um, th that was definitely a difficult call, I think, for the mayor at that point in time. But I think if we start looking at some of the intentions behind it, uh, we, we an advocate as a chamber, we an advocate for all business, both small business in, uh, as well as big business. I personally, from my own profile, um, Peter, work extensively in the small business development uh, sphere through property point and entrepreneurship to the point. And I, one of the, the biggest challenge is in terms of being able to really look at the support of small businesses, the formalization of small businesses. And I think uh, in order for us to be able to ensure that we have a thriving um, small business environment, uh, one needs to also be able to um, account for them. Um, and I think that one of the biggest challenges that we have is our uh, red tape for small businesses and, and just becoming formal. So did the mayor at that point in time skip a beat? Most probably, because you, I think in terms of trying to fix the problem, you need to also put the solutions in place. So with a lot of informal businesses or street vendors or, or township-based economies, you want to create a level of formalization of those businesses. But the biggest gripe 
for small businesses is the fact that formalizing sometimes mean the cost of doing business is so much more expensive. So there's definitely still room uh, in, in, in South Africa, especially from a policy perspective, to create a bit of a middle ground, especially for form, informal businesses um, wanting to, to formalize. You know, can we, can we focus around reducing the red tape, whether it's an issue around labor, uh, whether it's an issue around compliance, in order for small businesses to, to do a bit better. And I think for me, uh, especially from a chamber perspective, those are some of the key things that one wants to advocate for, is creating more of a, a established small business ecosystem that is thriving, but that is also contributing to the fiscus of the country. So they've got to pay their taxes. I think it's an important thing. We don't always want to pay our taxes, <laughs> but it's pay to Caesar what's due to him. Yeah, I had a discussion quite recently with somebody who said something very interesting about small business and growth and encouraging employers, because obviously you can't create jobs if you're not creating employers. And one of the problems is a very low threshold on VAT. In other words, you begin paying, your business begins paying VAT once you pass turnover of a million rand, which might have made sense 20 years ago when a million rand meant you know more than it does today. But wouldn't raising the ceiling encourage more people to get out there and, and try their luck and um, and maybe hire one or two people to, you know, do, do whatever it is that they want to do? I mean, you know, we don't want to tell people what to do. But surely the ceiling, the VAT ceiling is way too low. I, I definitely think so. And it's VAT, it's it's annual tax returns, it's tax compliance, it's there's a whole lot of um, re regulations that you need to be able to, to tap into. Um, an insight would also be when we started analyzing the debt relief fund that government put in place for small businesses during COVID, um, they were oversubscribed in terms of businesses applying for funding. But one of the biggest challenge was that over 50% of those businesses were not fully compliant to what was required. So the businesses needed to be registered with the Department of Labor. They needed to have the annual tax returns in place um, and, and, and a myriad of other uh, um, compliance documentations needed to be in place. And that gave us that perspective that a lot of small businesses are actually not as compliant um, and the question should be, should, should, there, should there be a relaxation in terms of the requirements for small business, like you've mentioned, the VAT um, question, is the threshold too low? Um, how, what are we able to do? And I think this has been a long-term debate around making the business environment more conducive for small businesses to formalize um, and, and rather do that. One of the things that you are passionate about, and I've seen an article, a very interesting article you wrote recently about what we call in South Africa the construction mafia. And for those people who hear this podcast uh, outside of South Africa, the construction mafia is considered to be people, if I get this right, Sean, or if I get it wrong, just uh, correct me. But basically, these would be people, either sort of local communities near a project or maybe not so near a project, who either because they don't want the project to go ahead or because they want a cut of the action can literally stop work proceeding on whatever is being built. I know for a fact that these kinds of mafias in the Eastern Cape have prevented a lot of progress being made on the new N2 highway between Cape Town and Durban. 
and bridges aren't being built because the local construction mafias basically have just chased away the foreign, the foreign. I mean, they've been so terrifying. The foreign contractors have pulled out of the country. I think it was an Austrian group. And it found itself, you know, having meetings with people with knives and machetes. And out they were. And so what happens now is that the roads just sort of set a standstill. What about Joburg? Is, is, it, is it a problem in Joburg? Definitely. I think it's a problem uh, on a national scale. Um, and it's, it's something that has been with us for, for quite some time. Um, for the past about four years now, we've extensively worked within that space. So um, the small business incubator and support program, Property Point, which I founded and run, and it's been in around for about 13 years now, focused predominantly with small business within the property industry. And that's really where we came and embarked on this challenge around the construction mafia. And I think one of the, the ins, uh, there's a few insights, um, Peter, that we've been able to really unpack in this space. Um, and understanding the, the misnomer, as the article also speaks to the fact that, you know, you need to unpack these various stakeholders. And I think that a couple of things that we've seen is the fact that there's definitely a criminal element and the criminal element um, needs to be dealt with um, quite decisively from a government perspective. But also there's a community element in it. And, and the question that one needs to then ask yourself is that are the communities really part of um, these opportunities that come to the fore? So when you start looking at how these developments get structured, um, your developer would appoint a main contractor. And part of that um, contracting potentially would be that they would need to include local community um, participants within those developments. And that becomes the question. What the, what the construction industry has done is they've um, um, used this appointment of a CLO or a community liaison officer, um, that, which they employ from a community perspective. And it, it becomes a bit of a tick box exercise. So once that is done, um, they feel that they've, uh, uh, they've actually engaged the community. Second element is that the, the CLO is then responsible to ensure that they are able to bring in communities. But sometimes what we see in these type of contracts is that they don't define who the local community communities are. And you would find that um, specifically communities that's working within where the development is, is not included. We also find that it's not a proactive approach in terms of when uh, developments or infrastructure uh, projects are um, uh, when infrastructure projects are awarded, there's been no community engagement. There's no understanding what are the skills um, that's, that exist within those communities or what's the skill gap that exists within those communities. How are we able to assist these communities with either the necessary support through, um, through training or incubation or skills development in order to be participants? So, this, this challenge has been around for a number of years uh, over, I would say, across the, our, our democracy where communities are not engaged and therefore they have, they have these developments on their door fronts and they, they, they're not part of those developments. And I think that came to arise with um, community protesting um, at the, and, and shutting down these uh, projects. Um, but also, once again, it gives the opening for the criminal element to also come into play. You mentioned uh, Lanseria just now. Lanseria is an area to the sort of north-west uh, of Johannesburg. There's a, quite a small but growing airport there. And President Cyril Ramaphosa has spoken of, you know, building a new smart city there. And you are involved in the beginnings of discussions about that, from what I gathered you were saying earlier on. 
how is that progressing and to what extent can you draw the because there is a big local community around Lanceria. First of all, is that project going ahead in any in any measurable way? Yeah. And two, can you involve the local communities in that so that it doesn't it isn't stopped halfway by people protesting and throwing stones and shooting people? Yeah. So so from a chamber perspective, we we have engaged with local government around the fact that uh, uh, the, the the project is going ahead. We we are not actively engaged. It's one of those elements, uh, or one of those items on my agenda to ensure that we do um, structure a, a bit more of a working group with a local government. Um, and your private developers in terms of the development in, in, in that Lanceria area. But I, from, from what I know, Peter, is that there is a strong community um, engagement process that is currently taking place. Um, but I think it's once again to, to what extent um, is it taking place and are we able to also ensure that these communities, if we start looking at the Lanceria, we're talking about Zanspreit, we're talking about Deep Slut, you know, are, are these communities being um, engaged? Do they do they have an understanding of what's also happening in those uh, projects um, and other opportunities that's being exposed to the communities? To that extent, I don't have uh, insight, um, but it's definitely something that I, I would gladly want to take up uh, to engage with uh, the Gauteng government on. I mean, you're, you're a property developer, so you'll have an idea whether a city and Lanceria or Sunspray, wherever are these viable are these viable propositions? If we look at the the geographic disbursement of of of, of Gauteng or Johannesburg, I definitely think it's it's something that's viable. It's a, it, it could potentially also um, lend itself to 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 broader and new industries coming to the forefront. Um, you know that the president spoke about in the in the context of smart cities. Um, you know, being able to to set up these type of smart cities in in, in environments that um, is accessible to people. Uh, it's it's definitely something that is is possible. So the viability of it is is definitely there. Other point of interest that we wanted to talk about was a letter you wrote to Business Day recently about me. You take an issue outrageously. I thought, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But I've been arguing that Trade and Industry and Competition Minister Brian Patel is going overboard, in my view, about pursuing these policies of what he calls localization, which is a which is another way of saying import substitution. We should import fewer things and make them, yeah, which, you know, up to a point I got some sympathy with. And then from that point on, I, I, I don't. And you made some interesting points in your letter, um, which I've now got in front of me. So I'll read back to you if you can't remember any. But what was your, what struck you about my, I can't remember which article it was because I've written quite a few about localization. Let's talk, talk to me about this for a moment. What, what is, what's your problem with my position? Yeah, I think so. When I read your position, Peter, there was a couple of elements that stood out for me. One is I, I agree with you around the political, um, almost political interference around this uh, issue of localization, and that the kind of it, it does not make sense from a political perspective, and the various ministries that are driving these processes might not necessarily. Um, be the right uh, ministers. I think there's also an element that you made reference to that it, it becomes more of a political move as a as an economic move. And I think that's where it was a bit of a, a challenge because I think that we do have challenges from a localization perspective. Um, but those, the, the challenges is really the fact that we have not necessarily created um, and opportunities for, for, for black industries. I think that the Department of Trade and Industry and Competition has failed um, 
as well in in supporting black industrialists in order to to really focus around um, um, creating a more industrial um, economy. Um, we we they they have uh, what they refer to as the Kazals program that they uh, that's that the department has um, supported. When I look at some of the outputs from those um, um, programs, it, it, it really lacks the opportunity for, for small businesses to, to really gain a significant growth in order to become um, local manufacturers. But I do think that we need to identify those failing areas and say, how do we put in place a, a, an, a plan and align it to the industrial policy action plan that will ensure effective prioritization of small businesses um, and the challenges that they face um, as small businesses to, to, to start focusing on becoming more um, export ready. Um, and I think that there needs to be some level of protectionism, um, but also knowing that um, we cannot, we cannot um, exclude um, global competition uh, in that drive. So the aim of localization should really be that our local small businesses need to, or local businesses need to become um, competitive and, and effective. I think some of the structural challenges that we have in the country uh, uh, minimizes that. So you also refer to it in your article around just the import cost. So if we look at the cost of energy, if we if we start looking at at the cost of labor. Um, those are challenges. Those are structural challenges that needs to be addressed. Um, but are we able to to put local at the forefront and, and provide that necessary support? Definitely should be a key priority for government to do. But surely we, we don't have the market to, you know, I mean, you made an interesting point in your letter. You said basically you started talking about what you called infant industries. You said, you said that one argument in favor of localization is the infant industry argument, which states that new industries require protection from international competitors and they, until they become mature, stable and competitive. Now, an infant industry, I presume we're talking about the same thing, is something that's making something new. It's not, it's not, another, it's not just a small business making nails or, or wire or, or is it? I'm not, I, I don't know, because if it's infant, if, if infant just means it's small, I find it problematic because you have what you have also are people who can use nails in what they want to do. And they may also be black industrialists, uh, but not they may not make wire or they may not make nails, but use them in whatever it is that they do want to make, but have to buy from a protected industry locally yeah. at an inevitably higher price which makes their product uncompetitive. You know, what, what happens with imports is that, for the most part, you're importing other people's low inflation. Mm. And I understand that people dump, and when, you know, dumping is outrageous, and, and you, can, yeah. you can nail dumping where you see it. Um, but I can't help thinking that we make a mistake when we encourage companies to grow up thinking that, uh, you know, overpricing is fair. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be tough. Out there, if you're not growing resilient, tough businesses, you're going to always struggle to set them free. But you're going to always have to sort of keep a hold on them in case they stumble, because out there the world is difficult, and it's hard also, I think, to be protectionist and an exporter at the same time. Where do we want to be? Do we, you know, we're the biggest, second biggest citrus exporter in the world now, and that was done without any protectionism, without any, without any government. In fact, the farmers did that themselves. I see the government now trying to take credit. But that's also something that took quite a while to, to get there. Yeah. And I think 
What we're advocating for is a phased approach to localization that allows SMMEs to build up capacity, also ensuring the, the development of sustainable businesses through the support of incubation programs. And uh, I think also advocating for... But how do you know when a business is sustainable? A business needs to be sustainable by, by being able to um, stand on its own and be competitive in a marketplace. But I think in order for us to get to that stage, we need to focus on uh, a stronger um, industrialization strategy, um, the economic zones, uh, being able to identify economic zones. Um, and also, I think one of the challenges that government has at the moment is in it's, it's failing from a, um, its strategy on the, it's in industrial parks. Um, we have so many industrial parks and economic zones in South Africa that are not fully being utilized or that's not um, actually e effective. So I think that comes back into place, Peter, where I say that uh, big business needs to, or government also needs to work with big business in order to start fixing up some of these structural challenges um, in order for us to, to, to focus on a, a long-term game in terms of um, localization uh, and changing to a more manufacturing-focused uh, economy as well, as opposed to just being a consumer-based economy. Yeah, no, look, I mean, you know, we, we, we say we're a consumer-based economy, but we've been exporting minerals and ores for most of our economic history in South Africa. And I, I don't know why people don't value the fact that we can dig up iron ore and, or coal or platinum, whatever it might be, and, and ship it out for that. That's our part in the chain, you know, and, and it's a pretty valuable part. And as you can see in the latest numbers, there's been a commodities boom and South Africa's actually collected more tax profit than it had budgeted for six months ago even. I think the sad part when we start looking at that, Peter, is, is I guess as long as or as far as and wide as South Africa has always been strong in terms of the kind of exporting of, of resources and mineral resources, we've not effectively built those value chains in the country ourselves. But why should we? I mean, I mean, but this is the point. Why don't we know our place in the value chain and appreciate it and look after it? We haven't, dug, we haven't opened a single mine in 20 years. Why don't, why don't we do our part in, the, in that value chain, that international value chain properly, rather than trying to replace everybody else? You're trying to replace your own customers. Not necessarily replace, I think, but, but taking up a, 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 whether it's a secondary component in the value chain. At the mo moment, if we look at the resources value chain, we are we, the value that we extract out of the ground is definitely not the value that the consumer is paying for once that uh, refinement has taken place. So I, I, I think that with, within those global value chains, we need to start saying, is there a place for us to, to become more competitive? Do we have the necessary skill sets, um, the necessary government support in order to, 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 to build industries that can also compete effectively with our peers globally when it comes to, for instance, our, our resource value chains? Yeah, I mean, my own view is that what you do is you invite the people who are already doing that to come and do it in South Africa. And you talked about earlier on about the uh, um, about the industrial parks. Sean Tunison, thank you ever so much for uh, joining me. I've got to stop there now. My producer is um, knocking on the door. I really appreciate having had an opportunity to talk to you. I hope you come back again. No, definitely. Peter, thank you so much. Thank you to the listeners. And hopefully we can have a few more of these chats. Yeah, you know, and thank you also to uh, our listeners for sticking with us. I'm so frightened for people up in Joburg, Sean, with this Delta variant. Um, I just appeal to everybody to be very, very careful. Just avoid crowds, avoid indoors, wear a mask, 
don't listen to people with their conspiracy theories about COVID not being a threat to you. It is. See you next week. Thank you.